I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Lori. I'm back. How you guys doing? Better now? Okay, good. All right. Yeah, all right. Good, good, good. I uh, wasn't going to mention anything about this. I uh, wasn't planning to mention anything about this, but then it just seemed to come together. And so uh, it's an opportunity to maybe um, say a little bit more about what Redemption Church is all about. If you're not aware, Redemption Church is one church with eight congregations. Soon to be nine, right, Myers? If you're in here. Anyway, soon to be nine. And um, uh, one of the things that we truly, truly value is the development of, of uh, strong young leaders, uh, pastors, preachers, and shepherds. And we do that a couple of ways. One is through internships, which are m- much shorter. Those are usually six to nine months. But we also have a very uh, well-developed, formal, what we call a residency program that actually lasts three to five years for most of the guys uh, that go through it. And so Sean Myers, whom we are planting at Redemption Peoria, has been through this residency program now for a little bit over uh, three years. And he's done a, a great job. And... Um, I want to mention that we now have, uh, in the last year, we have brought, brought on at Redemption Arcadia two more residents, and if you weren't aware of that, uh, Dave Massey, who, um, David Massey, who some of you know, sometimes he reads scripture, most of the time um, he's downstairs helping with uh, children, uh, you're going to get to know him even more, we uh, brought him on board, I think last March, actually, if you turn around and look through the window right there, there's <laughs> There he is right there. Yeah, okay. He's the guy with the big beard. So um, we brought him out. So uh, he's, he is a resident. He's a graduate of Phoenix Seminary, and, and uh, we're working with him. Uh, and, and he's been uh, part-time up until now. I have submitted in our budget uh, plans to make him uh, more, full, more like a full-time employee uh, after the first of the year. And so we're praying about that and hoping we can get that uh, approved. And then uh, the guy that was just right here leading us in worship, Rick Umble, he is also, uh, we brought him on, I believe, in August as a pastoral resident as well, uh, primarily to help with worship. And so Cody steps aside once a month and, and has uh, Rick lead us, and he does a great job, right? He's, it's, it's just terrific. Yeah, really good. Um, and uh, one of the things that I hope to get you exposed to eventually is he's also a wonderful Bible teacher as well. And so hopefully that'll be a part of his training as well. Uh, we raise up these guys not for Redemption Arcadia, but for redemption and the kingdom of God. I want you to understand that. We don't, we don't put our stamp on them other than the fact that they are a part of our community, but we realize that we want to use them in a way that God would call them to be uh, of the greatest service to the kingdom of God here on earth. And so 
we are privileged to have them for a little while, just like we've been privileged to have Myers, Sean Myers, for a little while. So that's our deal on uh, the residency program. Um, give you just one other little example. Tempe has, the Tempe congregation has six different residents. Uh, I got to spend Thursday night with Ricardo, the lead pastor, and their six residents doing some training, and it was just awesome. And I want you to know, um, uh, the church is in great hands with these young leaders that are coming up. We're really excited about that. So, having said that, uh, might be the last lighthearted thing that we get to deal with this morning. Uh, we have been in Romans for quite some time, amen? Those of you that have been around. Uh, w- today is the second to last Romans message. Can I get a big amen on that? Okay, all right, yeah. All right, so second to the last Romans message today. And, and I want to tell you that I have, I have a disclaimer this morning. It's actually a word of caution, okay? And here it is. In this paragraph... Verses 17 through 20, Paul uses, uh, he's been direct and unequivocal so far. He always is. But this is the most direct and unequivocal that he is in all of the book of Romans. There is absolutely no wiggle room. He's not kidding around. This is really heavy, really serious stuff today, which seems a little bit odd because he just got done doing all those greetings in the first 16 verses of chapter 16. Uh, He's been doing all the greetings. If you feel like he's wrapping things up, there's not much more for him to say. But then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute. I need to make mention of this too. And this is really heavy. So this is going to be very serious stuff. Uh, There's a guy named Kent Hughes who wrote an exceptionally good commentary on the book of Romans. He writes this. Verses 17 through 20 are forceful and lack the careful restraint that has thus far marked Paul's approach in this letter. And so we're in for it this morning. We're going to be wrestling this morning. You're going to wrestle with the text. You're going to wrestle with God. Some of you are going to want to wrestle with me a little bit. This is going to be some pretty uh, heavy stuff. Uh, We will also do verses 21 through 23 this morning. I didn't have Lori read them, but we'll we'll spend a couple of minutes in that as well before we wrap up. Uh, So here's the big idea. I want to give you the big idea, then I'll tell you how we're going to handle this this morning. The big idea is this. It's only two words. I was able to boil it down to two words. And like I said last week, if you walk out of here today with nothing but the big idea, I would say that's a victory. That's a win. If you understand this notion, the big idea is this. Love protects. Love protects. And we're going to unpack that notion throughout these uh, four verses. Genuine love, if you go back to chapter 12, verse 9, where Paul says, let your love be genuine. Genuine love is a love that is always going to protect those that are loved. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And so uh, what we're going to do today is I'm going to work through the passage Uh, and and do some application as we work through it. But then, uh, at the end, there's going to be three questions that I want to answer as well. And and as we work through this passage, I think it's very important that you have this grid through which to hear today's message. And here's the grid. We've been talking about the Christian ethic of love since chapter 12, verse 9 in Romans. So we've been talking about this now for months. And what we've been saying is that in chapter 12 of Romans, the primary characteristic of love is that love serves. Love serves. 
In chapter 13, we've been saying that the primary characteristic of love is that it submits. It submits to others. It submits to uh, the proper godly authorities that God has placed in our lives. And then in chapters 14 and 15, we've been talking about how the primary characteristic of love is that it unifies, it harmonizes. It's a unifying agent in the midst of our differences, in the midst of our discussions and our pushing and pulling and our debating. Love is the, is the overarching uh, uh, item, the, the, the sort of the, the lube that helps us to be unified and to harmonize. Well, here in verse 16, we're going to tell you that love protects And here's the sticky wicket that we have to deal with today. If we have the first three characteristics of love, the serving, the submitting, and the unifying, but we don't have that fourth, we don't also have that fourth, there will be trouble, there will be deception, and there will be destruction. It'll go along okay for a while, but ultimately, at some point, somebody will come in and take advantage of the fact that you're having a love that serves, submits, and unifies without a love that protects. That love that protects completes the entire package of love. Love is not complete without it, this protection piece. And of course, many people, we just have, we have to get the, here it goes, it's already going to be tough. We have to get this on the table. Many people want you to love them with those first three characteristics. They want you to love them in a way that serves them and submits to them and unifies them and makes everything all nice and peachy keen. But the minute you're going to love them also by protecting others that you love, that which means confronting them about certain things, then they're saying, oh, wait a minute, I, that's not the kind of love that I signed up for. I like the way love serves me in these uh, overt ways, but now when you come along and you say, okay, love is also going to protect, and that means that I have to talk to you about something very serious, that's where people tend to back away from this, okay? But if we do not, out of love, protect as shepherds, protect the church, protect the people, then we are not good shepherds. This fourth characteristic of love is critical to the completion of the entire love picture, Okay, so let's start going through the passage. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on verse 17. It's a short passage, so don't worry. But we'll spend probably the most time on verse 17. Paul writes, and again, remember, this is after all of these nice little greetings and you feel like he's wrapping things up and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Avoid them. So Paul says in verse 17, watch out for those who create divisions. Now, literally that word, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, I'm going to do a lot of Greek word studies today because it really brings out the full flavor of what Paul is saying here. So hang in there with me. That word div- division is literally the Greek word dissension. And, and, and I, I know you're going to say, well, you're really splitting a hair here. We need to split this theological hair here today. This is really important. In order for there to be division in a church, there must first be dissension. There has to be dissension stirred up and sown in a church for there then to be division and factions. And I know, you could say, well, one can leave the church, one can get upset with the church and leave the church and go somewhere else to church or maybe not even go to church at all. Isn't that a division of sort? 
Yes, it is. It's one person deciding to divide themselves from their body, yes. But the division that Paul is talking about here is divisions with factions, not fractions, but factions, groups of people. And in order for there to be that kind of division, somebody must first go to people in the church and stir them up with dissension, sow dissension in the church. And so Paul says, watch out for those who are stirring up this dissension. And so let me pause here and just make this point. You and I in the church can stir people up in one of two ways. There's two different ways that we can stir people up. The first one I'll talk about is is what, for instance, Peter says in his second letter. He says in his second letter that you and I can stir each other up by reminding each other how important it is for us to live godly lives by the power of the gospel. And so we do that, he says, by encouraging one another and praying for one another and and building one another up and confessing to one another and holding each other accountable and challenging one another in love and grace and speaking truth to one another and respecting and honoring each other. We stir each other up by pressing into the gospel together. That's one way that we can stir each other up. Or we can stir each other up this way. And this is the way that Paul is talking about and it's a negative way. It's a way that we're supposed to watch out for. We stir each other up with false teaching and bad doctrine and self-centered agendas and personal kingdom building and complaining and grumbling and backbiting and the infliction of our preferences. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Things that cause divisions and factions and disunity in the church, things that God calls sin. Let's be very clear about this. He calls this sin. And for there to be division, there must first be dissension, sown and stirred up. It's interesting, in Proverbs chapter 16, this is the Old Testament wisdom literature, in Proverbs chapter 16, God speaks of the things that he detests, the, the things that he hates, and he has a list of things. And, and Hebrew scholars say that the one thing that is in that list in the most emphatic and prominent place is this thing. Those who stir up and sow discord and dissension within the body. God detests this. He hates this. So this is, this is tough. Now, I know at this point we gotta handle this because some of you are saying, wait a minute, I'm a little confused. So you're saying now that we can't have disagreement in the church? Is that what you're saying? Haven't you been preaching and teaching that in our unity we can have diversity and we can have dis- disagreements and we can differ? And the answer to that is yes, of course. But disagreement is different than dissension and division making. Uh, one, one person de- uh, defines dissension this way. It's disagreement that ends in a quarrel and causes somebody to go on being quarrelsome. See, we have no problem with disagreement. It's the quarrel and the quarrelsomeness that becomes the sin and the problem. And Paul says this is a problem because it creates obstacles. Verse 17 again. It creates obstacles contrary to sound doctrine. That word, uh, the Greek word creates obstacles is the Greek word scandalon. I'll give you one guess what English word we get from the Greek word scandalon. Here's what Paul is saying. When people in the church create dissension, division, and factions, they are a scandal. And so... He says we are to watch out for this dissension and obstacle creating. Literally, watch out means to keep a vigilant, alert eye on the church. We're we're to be intentional about ferreting out this disharmony. 
And, and I know, I, I, I'm gonna, it's a couple times I'm gonna say something like this. I know this kind of message uh, creates a variety of responses that are all along a spectrum. I, I just know from experience that right now, some of you internally, you are literally sitting there going, yes, he is, oh, this is so important. I, he's really bringing it this way. He's passionate about this. This is so important. We need more preaching like this. And some of you are sitting there going, when is this gonna be over? Because it's really hard and awkward and I don't feel so good right now. And I, and I just want to acknowledge that. I understand that there is a spectrum here this morning. Those of you who are really enjoying this, you will tell me right after the service. Those of you that aren't, you will tell me probably sometime around Tuesday through email. Okay, and I get that. I get that. But, but, but this is what Paul is bringing. We, by the way, let me say this also about, um, about redemption. This is one of the reasons why we preach verse by verse, even word by word through entire books of the Bible because we cannot avoid or skip passages that are difficult. It means that we preach and teach the full counsel of God's word here. We can't avoid stuff that might be a little tense or awkward for people. And so I get that. I know that there's, there's some tension in the room right now. I get that. And we're gonna have to live and wrestle with that tension And Paul says, and now it's even going to get tougher for some of you, he says, avoid these people. Avoid these people. Now, let's make sure we understand. Avoid them after you've confronted and counseled and corrected them, and they have decided that even with the counseling and the correction, even with the shepherding, they have decided that they're not going to stop doing what they're doing. In other words, they have not repented of this. We've gone through Matthew chapter 18, church discipline with these people. We've had one person go. We've had a, several people go, and they refuse to stop what they're doing. Paul says you need to avoid them. In other words, the word avoid in the Greek literally means do not give them a hearing. Do not give them a hearing. In other words, we're not going to give them people to lead. We're not going to give them a ministry to lead. We are going to start protecting other people from them and their teaching. Here's how one pastor describes it. He says it's disunity for the purpose of genuine unity. It is disunity for the purpose of genuine unity. And what we avoid is not differences, but we avoid divisiveness. Uh, One person describes it this way. It's called isolation. I want you to understand that there are times when the only thing that is going to bring a person to their knees about sin is to isolate them from the body. That's the only thing that will work. And I know some of you are, wait a minute, God is filled with grace. That doesn't sound very graceful. In His grace, sometimes God uses isolation to finally rattle somebody's cage about their sin and help them understand it. That is what Matthew, when you go through the full progression of Matthew 18, essentially what we're doing is we're, if we get to a place where they refuse to repent through several steps, we're going to have to isolate them. That might be the only way that, 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 that they'll allow God to reveal to them their sin. He's doing that in, in his grace. And then verse 18, Paul writes this, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So these are people, Paul says, who aren't serving Jesus, they're serving themselves. And again, I understand some of you, for some of you, this is really hard to imagine is real. You've never, you've never really 
gone deep into what we call church world. You've never been part of leadership. You've never been an elder or a deacon. You've never been on staff. And so it's very hard. Church is supposed to be just with nice people who all get along. You need to understand, this actually happens. The church for 2,000 years, this is not a recent phenomenon, the church for 2,000 years has been a place that is a primary and favorite target of self-serving people. The Bible would call them wolves, Okay, it's a target of self-serving people who want power, wealth, status, and influence for one reason and one reason only so that it can gratify them and fulfill them. And they'll do it at any expense, including the expense of their community. And they target the church because they know, they know enough about, about the Bible and about God's love and all of that stuff. They, they know enough to know that, that we're supposed to love in a service-oriented, submissive, and unifying way, but they're hoping that we don't understand that protection thing. And that's where these problems can start to happen. When the love isn't completed with the protection, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's completing this full holistic picture of what genuine love is. And so they look for this environment where there's the the easy parts of love but not the tougher parts of love. Paul says it this way, it is only their appetites that they are interested in satisfying. That word appetites in the Greek literally means gluttonous stomachs. And I want you to understand, Paul's using metaphor here. He's not saying that they just want to eat a lot of food. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that they, they have... Uh, their gluttonous about all of their desires being fulfilled at the expense of everyone and everything else and Jesus is not their object of affection. Their object of primary affection is their own desires. These are people who ravenously suck others dry for their own agendas, their own purposes, and their own self-interests. Paul says it this way in the, in, in the letter he writes to the church to Philippi. He says, their God is their belly. Their God is their personal gluttonous appetite. And so you and I, all the time. And by the way, church leaders, church pastors, church staff members, church elders are not above having this happen. We wrestle with this too. And so all of us at all times should be asking ourselves this question. Is the true God of our life, our desires, our appetites, our belly, or is it Jesus? We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. You don't need to just hear it on Sunday. We need to preach it to ourselves every day to make sure that Jesus is kept in his primary deserved position. And the people Paul talks about here are not the least bit interested in the lordship of Jesus Christ in their life, but they are often pretty good at disguising their agenda in pious spiritual garb. In other words, it takes a little bit of time before this re- we really begin to see this manifesting itself. And I, I, I get it, yes, this is the really ugly side to church, but it's also a reality, and we need to deal with it. It's in the text for crying out loud. It's in Romans, and so we need to deal with it. So how do we know that that's what these people are doing, Paul lines it out for us, man. He says right there in verse 18, he says, they are smooth talkers and bestowers of false flattery. So the, the, the Greek word smooth talk literally means attractive speech that lacks substance. Attractive speech. So in other words, it's, it's speech that's been disguised, okay? And flattery, fra- flattery means praise designed to deceive, Praise designed to deceive. So like I said, this is really, really serious stuff. And why is this so serious? Why is Paul pounding on this? He says, because it deceives the hearts of the naive. It deceives the hearts of the naive. There are unsuspecting people who will fall for this nonsense. 
And so they need to be protected. That's part of our job. That, that, that phrase, deceive the hearts of the naive in the Greek is literally, they will cheat the unsuspecting. And lest you think that Paul's the only one that deals with this, Peter also deals with this in his second letter. He warns of false prophets who will attempt to exploit God's people with stories they have made up. Stories they have made up. And here you go. It's going to get even tougher right now. This is not just something that was happening 2,000 years ago. We find this today. Here's a contemporary example. And we haven't really talked about this since April of 2013. So it's been more than a year and a half since we've talked about this. And, And so we're going to use it as our contemporary example today. In the area of biblical, gospel-centered sexuality, the church is under tremendous attack and pressure to abandon the teaching of God and to submit to the current cultural values. That is going on now. It's been going on for quite some time, and it's going on with a level of ferocity that has rarely been seen before. And just know, you need to know, the, the leadership team of Redemption has talked about this. We, you can't help but talk about it in the midst of our culture today. And here's what you need to know about Redemption Church. Redemption Church will not go along. We stand on the gospel. We stand on Jesus. We stand on the Bible, and we will not be moved. I'll give you an example of this. Recently, some of you know about this. Very recently, in Houston, the openly gay mayor initiated subpoenas of five pastors' sermons who had preached recently on biblical sexuality. She was angry because she knows she's not living a biblically sexual life, but, what, but rather than listening to the discussion about it, she wants no discussion about it. She wants to end all possible challenges to what she sees as her own truth. And so the city's intent, and she got the prosecutors, the, the attorney general to go along with this, the city's intent was to prosecute the pastors and actually put them in jail under their anti-discrimination law. So here's my message to you. If you think this isn't coming, you are fooling yourself. In fact, it's already here. We're way beyond this even now. And so as the body of Christ, we need to be praying and praying and praying, and we need to recognize that there is always going to be an assault on biblical teaching and sound doctrine, and today, that assault is coming in the form of sexuality. In another 40 years, it's going to come in some other form. It it, it always comes in some form. Satan will not stop. He will not stop. Now, there is another side of this that I have to present as well. I'm compelled to present by the gospel. I must present it. I have not done my job if I don't present this. Even in the midst of this challenge, you and I, as the bride of Christ, we must, be, we must continue to be purveyors of the gospel, the good news of God, and of compassion. Just because you and I don't affirm or agree, it does not let us off the hook from being Christ-like. Amen? One pastor describes it this way. We have to have compassion without compromise. Is that going to be easy to do? That's a tough line to walk, but that's what God has called us to. We are to love. We are to be compassionate. We are to be purveyors of the gospel. We are to be Christ-like, but we cannot compromise in the midst of that. So in other words, we can't condemn the culture, but we can't comp- and we can't capitulate to it either. Instead, Jesus specifically calls us to live in the culture and to minister to the people in the culture. That's what we're supposed to do. 
And this is going to be hard. Well, how do we do that? Man, we need grace to be able to do that. I don't have a seven-point plan. I don't have a, a curriculum that we're going to do on Wednesday nights, how to be a cultural warrior for Christ. I, none of that. We just need grace. And, and again, th- this, this trumps this idea that grace is for salvation and salvation alone. No, grace is for salvation, but that's not a complete picture of grace. Grace is also for how we live in this culture today. We are empowered by it. It's the Holy Spirit in us. It's the resurrected Christ doing his work through us. And that is by his grace that it is. We need Jesus in order to be able to do this. So we can't run and we can't surrender, but rather we need to live lives that are led by the Holy Spirit. And one last thing, I, I bring this up because, and actually I had people after the first service tell me this was actually helpful, okay? I, I wanna say, I, I understand how communication works. I've spent a lot of years studying both theology and communication. I understand how communication works. We live in what is known as, in the United States, what is known as a receiver-oriented culture when it comes to communication. Anybody ever heard that? Okay, we're a receiver-oriented culture. That means that once a message is sent by the sender of a message, the receiver of that message has full control over that message to determine what they heard and what it means. So once, it makes it very hard to be a communicator in a receiver-oriented culture because once you've communicated, you've lost complete control of your message and its interpretation and what people have heard. So here's what I know, again, based on experience. Here's just what I know. Those of you, and there are people in this room who I know, that, and, and I appreciate you sitting through this uh, for this time. I know there are people in here who, when it comes to this idea of biblical sexuality, you are completely against it. And what you've heard from me right now is that I'm pretty much a narrow-minded, fundamentalist, irrelevant jerk, okay? I get that. I get that. But there's another side to that, too. I also know from experience that there's a, there are those of you who are sitting here right now who are offended beyond repair that we even have to talk about this in here, that the church is supposed to be a sanctuary and a protective place against all of that horrible, awful, perverted sin out there in the world, and the fact that you would bring it up and even say we need to apply the gospel and compassion to it, you figure I'm a liberal sellout for doing that. So I want to tell you, I feel like I've done my job. Thank you very much. All right, verses 19 and 20. Paul writes, for your obedience is known to all. Well, Paul's never been to Rome. How does he know that? He knows the church by reputation, and as we, knew, as we figured out last week, he knows a lot of people who are in that church and in leadership in that church, so he knows. And he's reminding them, you're doing a fine job, okay? Your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but even in the midst of your obedience, and even though I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So he says, even though you've done well and you have a great reputation, you still need to be wise and innocent, and I still need to remind you of the gospel. Every single time I get a chance, I need to remind you of what is good and what is right. And so here's where we talk about where 
You know, even though this doesn't feel good, it still needs to be done. Uh, Again, I know in a room like this, there is likely one or more families who have been through that intervention process with a member of your family. And the reason you did that that intervention process was because you have tried every other way to keep this member of your family from destroying themselves and because you love them and you want to protect them from themselves, you had to intervene at some point. And it wasn't pleasant. It was hard. It was tense. You were anxious. You lost a lot of sleep over it. You were fatigued and stressed out by it. I know this is very, very difficult, but it has to be done. And I know some people say, oh, but, 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 but pastor, we need to be tolerant. Let me tell you, my experience with tolerance is this. Tolerance rarely properly protects those whom we really love. Sometimes tolerance is the most unloving thing that you can do to somebody that you truly love. Remember, we need to put on the full armor of God and keep putting it on, Ephesians 6 says, so that we can, we can be battlers against the, the schemes of Satan and Satan himself. But it's also interesting that Paul says even though we are putting on that armor of God at all times, it's God who is going to crush Satan under our feet. God is the one who's going to do this. It's always God's power in our lives and we need to remember that. But Paul is also stating that those who spread dissension and division will also suffer this judgment as Satan's servants. Discord, dissension, and divisions are all the work of Satan. That's what Paul is saying here. All right. Let's have a little four-minute break from the heaviness before we get to those questions. Let me read verses 21 through 23. These are uh, Paul now greeting, ascending greetings to the people. I want to read this and do a little bit of unpacking here, and then we'll get to those questions, okay? So Paul writes in 21 through 23, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen, my brothers in the faith. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Uh, Paul had a, a secretary, in a sense, writing this letter for him. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Okay, so here's how I wanted to handle this, just for a couple minutes. I thought this was kind of fun and interesting. I went and looked uh, 2,000 and 3,000 years ago. In ancient times, what you were named actually had very deep, very great meaning. It was important, but my parents named me Frank, okay? So I guess they would be, they would say he's somebody who's Frank when he speaks. I, some, some of you really laugh. That I, I, I don't even realize I'm doing this, but I'm, apparently I constantly say, uh, frankly, <laughs> and then I say something. Okay, I, I'm not even aware that I'm doing that. So I'll just start saying, Sean Lee, or something like that, and maybe that will, that will help you. Anyway, so I looked up what these names meant, okay? And, and I didn't get them all. Some of them were too obscure. But for instance, Timothy. Any, do we have any Timothys here or Tims? Anybody? You got, there's one right there. Okay. Your name means precious one of God. You are a precious one of God. Jason. We, I know we have some Jasons here. Don't we have some Jasons here? Liars. Come on, get your hands up. Where are the, there, there you go. Okay, very good. All right. Jason is one who heals. One who heals. Okay, Sosipater, all, all you, three women in the back. Okay, good, all right. Sosipater literally means saving one's father, okay? Here's one. Does anybody, anybody offhand happen to know what tertius means? Does anybody know what tertius means? Third. It literally means third born. 
Okay, I can't. I'm a Seinfeld guy. I can't help if, to think about when George Costanza was talking about how he wanted to name his baby Seven. You know, which would have been a neat trick because George hardly ever even had a girlfriend, let alone getting married and having kids and all that stuff. But I remember that. Okay, so uh, Erastus means beloved, and if Tertius means thirdborn, what does Cordus mean? He was a fourthborn. Okay, here's what all the scholars say. Those two had to have been brothers. And then I would add this, of very uncreative and unimaginative pre- uh, parents, okay? By their third child, they were bored with naming their kid. Ah, third. That's it. Now, we have a lot of babies in Arcadia, so we're just giving you some ideas on how to name these babies, okay? By the way, remember Urbanus last week? I love this. We didn't get to this, but last week there was a name Urbanus in there. Literally, it means one who dwells in the city. Isn't that interesting? Apparently only to me. Let's move on to, this, uh, to the questions. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm still learning. All right, here we go. All right, three very serious questions. Number one, this passage we just went, to, went through, what does it tell us about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? What does it tell us about the gospel? Here's what it tells us. It tells us that in the gospel there is teaching and doctrine that is right and true and that Jesus is the master of this teaching and not only is the ma- he the master of the teaching but he's the fulfillment of this teaching as well. Therefore, if that's true, and it is, there are also false gospels. There's wrong gospels. There is teaching and doctrine that does not help, but rather it actually harms people. And here's one of the challenges there. Very often that teaching, that doctrine that harms people, it sounds pretty good. It tickles our ears. We don't realize that it's harmful to us. And so there has to be a filter to be able to look at that and say we need to protect people from this wrong teaching. And here's currently one of the most common challenges to right teaching is this teaching. People say all the time, they they say, I really like Jesus, and yes, I would elevate him above most common men, but he is certainly not the holder or the completer of all truth, And, and certainly Jesus is not the only voice. He's one of many equal voices. You need to understand, that's not true. It's false teaching. It's wrong, and it's harmful to you. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. I am the way, there's no other way. I am the truth, there is no other truth. I am the life, no other life. And, in case you didn't get it there, he adds this in, in, in the verse. He says, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus made the ultimate, final, atoning sacrifice on the cross as no one else has. He's unique in that regard, and he's also unique in the fact that he rose from the ga- grave. No one else has done that either. So Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that you and I have been looking for and everything that you and I think we need. Uh, This is not my own. I got this actually from Justin, who was the the founding pastor of Redemption Arcadia. I loved it when he would teach on this, and 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 he's, he's absolutely right about this. He would talk about how as human beings, even as those of us, even pastors do this, okay? People who really should know better. We just... The, the human condition is that we're just constantly looking for that next shiny object. We're just, we're just, we want something to fulfill us, something to complete us, and we're just constantly looking for those shiny things out there. Do you understand? Jesus is the only shiny thing, and he's right in front of you. You have him, and he dwells within you. You've got the shiny thing. You caught it. You have it. He saved you. So lean into that. Here's the second question. What does this passage tell us about ourselves? 
tells us that no matter what, there's always going to be this battle that rages, even with Christians, where, where we want to pull Jesus off the throne and we want to put, our, put ourselves on the throne. There is this constant battle. We, we, wanna, we, wanna, we look at God's word and we say, yes, we believe in God's word and we believe God's word and we believe it's perfect and true in every way, shape, or form and then we still come to it and we wanna nuance it or change it or edit it or add to the biblical teaching so that the teaching is more comfortable and less challenging and more appealing and less work and in that it's all about me and it's not about Jesus. And that just reminds us of the fact that we're fallen, that we have this sinful nature, that that we have a proclivity to take all things that are good and somehow pervert them. Uh, Robert Mounts writes this, trouble is never far away where people are concerned. Trouble is never far away where people are, are concerned. Paul calls us to remain true to the gospel, true to the faith, and true to the pure doctrine of Jesus. Paul even would say this, the gospel is worth dividing over. And then that third question, what does this right teaching call you and I to? There's a number of things, but three that are of primary importance. Number one, it calls us to love God. It calls us to love Him gratefully and lavishly and submissively and constantly. And it calls us to to, to just be reminded of the truth that the more we love God, the more we're going to want to know Him. And the more we know God, the more we're going to love Him. And we talk about vicious downward cycles often in life. This is a wonderful, beautiful, upward cycle. Know God, love Him more, love God, know Him more. So this teaching calls us to love God. It also calls us to love others. It calls us to love others with, the, with an overflow of the same love with which you and I have been loved by a love where the Father would take His Son Jesus and send Him to the cross so that you and I could be reconciled to Him. And we overflow with that same love to others. And then it calls us to know Jesus to, to read and to relish His Word, to be saturated in His Word. It also calls us to, to pray and not just simple, easy prayers, which are, we necessarily shouldn't purge. We can still pray those, but it also calls us to agonize and wrestle in prayer. And that means that in our prayers, we should sometimes be quiet and just listen for God's voice. And then also to be in community with others who know and love Him. We need to be in community with each other. I opened with this and I'm going to close with it. We've been talking about how um, love is the theme in Romans from chapter 12, verse 9 on. How is what Paul says here loving? How is it loving? Love protects. And and you know inherently this is true. You, You will do anything to protect those that you truly, genuinely love, right? You would even lay down your life for somebody that you truly, genuinely love. Jackie and I know without a doubt that we would lay down our lives for our two daughters. We wouldn't even have to think about it. It would be a natural reaction to do that. I want you to understand that Jesus also gave his life in the ultimate act of protective love. Here's what's beautiful about this. We know from Scripture that Jesus came as, as God in the flesh with a purpose in mind, a mission in mind, and that was to go to the cross. And we know from Scripture that he did that, that out of service to us. That's Romans 12. He served us by going to the cross. 
We also know that he submitted to this process. He submitted to the Father and he submitted to the cross. That's Romans 13. We also know that this unifies his people. The cross is, is the centerpiece of our unification and our harmony. So we know that he went to the cross in order to unify us. But you know what? He also went to the cross to protect us. It was the ultimate act of protective love. And what did the cross protect you and I from? From Satan, from sin, and from death. This is the greatest act of protection in the history of the world, and he did it for you and I. So Paul's job, and my job, and any pastor, any leader, any Christian really, is to protect people from wolves in sheep's clothing. Love protects, even if sometimes that love rubs people the wrong way. I guess we could say that love rubs. Well, my prayer this morning is that our rubbing would be gospel-centered. Let me pray. Sean will come and lead us into our time of of, uh, response. God, we are thankful, so thankful that you have completed your magnificent and ultimate act of love, a love that serves and submits and unifies by protecting us at the cross. We thank you for that. We are grateful for that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.